A 2015 article by Forbes magazine found that of all the successful people in the world, there's one common denominator. All your CEOs and top of industry people, there's one common denominator between all of them. And that is the quality of resilience. It seems like everybody who makes it to the top seems to have this amazing quality of resistance. And one of the reasons why I think that probably is that way is because up at the top, it's really competitive and it's lonely and it's challenging. It's a never ending uh, obstacles and challenges just get thrown at you all day long uh, with whatever industry that you're in. And it probably feels like there's a new challenge every single day. And it almost feels probably like your way of life is actually just designed against you or that the way of life is just working against you. And although we're not you know, CEOs, not all of us, at least are CEOs or top-end executives, I think that we can relate to this feeling. Especially right now during COVID with isolation and new restrictions coming out all the time and just almost feeling like our way of life right now is just like antithetical against us. It works against us all the time. And that is really why we are doing this series right now on the Resilient Church and just looking at different people in the Bible and in history who have displayed or showed resilience in the face of challenges or persecution or whatever it is because we want to learn how they did it and what happened so that we ourselves can also be resilient in our modern day context here today. So today we're gonna be looking at the story of Ananias in Acts 9. We're gonna be looking at the story of Ananias in Acts 9 and basically up until this point in the story of Acts, all the believers have come, they believe in Jesus, they're getting together, they're teaching, they're doing all these things and it's going well, but then the Jewish leaders and kind of the Jewish nation state gets really upset with them and what they're doing and what they're teaching. And so what they do is then they have this this like particular guy is the golden boy, Saul, and he, he particularly hates these Christians, these, the new way they're called, right? And so they, they get together and they decide that they're going to set up this guy named Stephen. So the Jewish leaders, they come and they have this court case against Stephen where they set him up and eventually it leads to Stephen getting stoned and being killed. And at that point, a great persecution breaks out against all the Christians, all these new people, all these new believers in this area. And so they scatter into all the different areas of the town and the surrounding areas and the surrounding cities. And at that point, when they all scatter, Saul, the golden boy, he sets together this task force and basically this special group. And he gets permission from all the Jewish leaders to go and to round up all the Christians, to round up all these people, of this new cult that the Jewish leaders saw it as. And so he is on the road with his bodyguards and his special task force, and they're traveling from one town to the other when Jesus actually meets with Saul. And if you've read the story of Acts, you might know that Jesus comes in this giant flash of light and he meets Saul and Saul goes, what, who are you? And, and then Jesus goes, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he goes, I'm Jesus. And then he says, you're gonna go to the city and you're gonna wait for further instruction. And then after that, all his bodyguards and his people, they're all amazed at what they just, this flash of light and everything they just saw and heard. and and. Saul is blind. He's blinded by the light. And now he has to go for three days. He waits in the city blind and he's pray he prays and he fasts and he does all this stuff, but he's blind and he can't see and he's waiting for instruction. And at the same time, Jesus goes, God speaks to this man named Ananias in that same city. And that's where we're going to be picking up from today. We're going to be reading Acts 9, starting from verse 10. So in Damascus, that's the city, there was a disciple named, named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. He said, Ananias, yes, Lord. Ananias answered him. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street 
It's a great name for a street, straight street. And ask him for a man named, uh, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man from all the harm that he has done for your holy people in Jerusalem. So Ananias is saying, God, I know about this guy. Like, he's a bad dude. Why are you sending me to him? And he has come here, he continues to say, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. So Ananias takes that long trip to Straight Street to go to this house to look for Saul from Tarsus. And he goes to this home, he finds him, and he, he lays his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you to see so that you may again be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell off of uh, Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized. See, every story that we picked for this series, the Resilient Church series, every story, like we have so many options to pick from the Bible and from history. So we had to be incredibly particular with every single one that we picked. And so we had to choose Ananias and Saul over a whole list of other stories. But we made the decision to choose a story because in this story, there are three key points that are all related to resilience that are absolutely vital and crucial for us so that we can be a resilient church. The three key points that we can find in the story in Acts 9 is God's plan, God's power, and God's potential. We can see in the story God's plan, God's power, and God's potential. So the first point, God's plan. Let me ask you a question about this. Maybe you've read this a couple times before. Maybe this is not a new story to you. Has it ever struck you as kind of weird how it went down? Like if I was writing the story and I had never known about all the things that were going to happen and someone was just like, hey, write a story about how Saul gets miraculously saved by God. I'd be like, okay, well, he's going to be walking from city to city and then God's going to come in a flash of light. He's going to be like, hey, who are you? And then God's going to be like, I'm Jesus. Stop persecuting me. Huzzah! And then he'll be saved. And, and that would be it. But when you read this story, it's like, hey, he reveals himself in a flash of light. He says, he, he says I'm Jesus. Stop persecuting me. And he goes, and now you're blind. And now you're going to get led by hand to the city. And then you're going to wait for three days and fast and pray. And then some random guy that you don't know is going to come to you and he's going to lay his hands on you and he's going to pray for you, even though he's really scared to do it. And then, then you're finally going to have your eyesight back and then you're going to receive the Spirit and be baptized and then you're going to be saved. Like It's kind of like this complicated round about story and it never struck me as that weird until I kind of sat with it for a little bit longer. I never questioned it. And now I sit and think about it. It's like, why did it happen that way? See, Ananias was just like minding his own business. He was just being a good disciple. He's in his thing. He's doing his thing. And then God calls on him to go meet with this guy who is a leader of a movement that is their sole mission is to imprison and torture people like Ananias. I can only imagine what it would have felt like for him to have received that. Now, I don't know a lot about Ananias. I don't, there's not a lot written about him. But my guess would be that if you looked in his day planner for that day, you wouldn't see, go meet with Saul, the leader of the revolution. You know, like, I don't think that was part of his plan. We have cats at our house. Uh, and to be honest with you, I didn't really want cats um, growing up. But my wife wanted cats. And so we got one, but it ended up bonding with me and it doesn't really like her that much. So then we got another one. So anyways, I have a cat now 
Uh, and my cat, which I love, um, her life revolves around her food bowl. That is everything to her, right? And so she, her life just completely revolves around this food bowl. When she's hungry, she gets annoying. She tries to trip me. She swats at me. She's meowing all the time. She's like step walking all over me. She like every, if, if her food bowl is empty, it's like an existential crisis to her. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, when she gets hungry, I go up and we're going upstairs and she's like showing me up, right? So she's like walking and then I walk up a little bit more and then she comes up with me. And then, and then we finally get to the food bowl, which is at the end of the hallway. And then I see, oh, your food's empty. Okay. And then the problem is that where we store their food is all the way on the other side of the hallway. And so then what I got to do is turn around and start walking away. But when she sees me walking away from her empty food bowl, all of a sudden it's like I'm leaving her to die. And so she just starts swatting and meowing at me. And it's like the end of the world for me, for her, because I'm walking away from this empty food bowl. And the worst part is like, we do this every week. It's like, uh, come on, you stupid cat. Like every single time I go, how many times have I let you starve and die in the seven years that we've had you? Like, haven't you learned yet that I'll never let you starve? But for some reason, every single time when I walk over, she like forgets that I have all this extra food. And it's just, <laughs> it's just so silly that we go through it. And I just have constant scratches on my ankles all the time because of this. And if I'm being honest with myself, sometimes I'm that stupid cat. Right? Sometimes my food bowl is a little empty. Sometimes things in my life aren't going according to plan and I don't want to be down that low on the, on the reservoir list. And then all of a sudden I'm having this existential crisis. It's the end times for me because what is going on in my life is not going according to my plan. Sometimes that's you as well. And if you are going through a hard time right now, I don't want to make light or trivialize what you're experiencing by equating you to a hungry cat. I understand what it's like to feel like your food bowl is pretty empty. I've been feeling like my food bowl is like dangerously low for quite a long time now. I've been swiping at ankles for like the last six months myself. I understand what you're going through. But what I want you to understand right now, what I think we need to understand right now is that I'm on a different level than my cat. I mean, sometimes she thinks that she's on a different level than me, but, but I'm on, like her life revolves around living in this townhouse where she has this fancy water fountain and this little food bowl, and that's it. That's her whole life. That's her whole identity. And so what she doesn't realize is that when I walk away from that food bowl, I'm going to get more food. She thinks that it's the end of the world that this food bowl is empty. But to me, it's like, are you kidding? I could fill up that food bowl a hundred times. and It wouldn't mean anything to me. It's not even like a full like task on my checklist for things to do that day. It's like a, a, an inconvenience thing. I just have to do it on my way to bed. I'm just like, oh, fill up the food bowl. It's nothing to me to do that. But to her, it's the end times. And I think sometimes for us, when life doesn't go according to plan, it feels like the end times. And what we need to understand in those times is that just like how the cat and me are on a different level, God and us, we're, in these, we're on this different level that we sometimes don't understand. And sometimes we need to realize that the things that we are going through, even though they're real, even though the pain that you experience, the fear, the loneliness, the anxiety, whatever it is, those things are real, even though that is real, that God is on this different level than us. 
So we often think that when things don't go according to plan, that when things aren't working out in our life, that we're, uh, we're abandoned or we're forgotten or God just has, doesn't know what's happening in our life or he's given up on us or, or, or he's not capable of doing these things. Even though we might believe in God and we believe he's all powerful or whatever, when those things go wrong in our life, when things don't go according to plan, it's so easy, it's so tempting to feel as though God has just forgotten or he doesn't know what we're going through. Or God, why is this happening? Why are you letting me go through this? See, sometimes he calls us out into the storm. Sometimes he calls us to go in and do things or calls us out into a place in life that is not actually according to our plan. And when we go through those things, we feel alone or vulnerable or like calamity. It's just one street away, right? We're just walking down that long road and it feels like, man, the end is coming up and we don't, and we feel that, that pressure, that anxiety, whatever it is. But what we need to remember is that God has a plan. That God has this plan. And what we're actually going to see in a minute here as we go a little bit further is that God's plan is so much better than what we could ever imagine. That God, what God has for us is so much better than what we could actually think for ourselves. So even though we might think we have a good plan for our own life, God's plan is better. Now here's the thing. That's such a trite Christian saying. Like I hate it when people say that to me, especially when I'm in the middle of going through a valley, especially when I'm in the middle of going through something where it's like, man, you don't understand. Like, don't tell me that God's got a plan. You don't see my finances. You don't see what's going on in my life. Like, it's really, it makes me want to do things that I can't say when I'm preaching. But I, I, I hate that saying. And you know what? Maybe that brings you like calmness. Maybe that helps to hear that God has a plan and it's better. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But why I want to say that to you today is because I want to prepare you. What I mean by that is I want to prepare you because in those moments when you are going through that valley, when you feel as though you're alone or abandoned or God doesn't know what's going on or your life is getting shaken up and things are just completely changing and it's not going according to plan and you're in that valley in those moments, I want to prepare you for that. Maybe you're going through that right now, but I guarantee you, you will be going through that in your life. And I want to prepare you because the temptation when you are down there in the depth is to give in to fear and to doubt. The temptation for you when life doesn't go according to plan is to give in to this fear and this doubt. And so it's not just enough to know that, oh yeah, God's got a plan. That's why, that's why sometimes it frustrates me because it's just like, it's not just like a knowing thing. It's actually like a gritty living it out thing because it's not natural. It's not natural when, when you're going through that. It's not natural to be like, oh, God's got a plan. It'll be okay. It'll all work itself out. Like when your finances are in disarray, it's not natural to feel that way. When your life or your relationships or God is calling you to quit your job or do something, it's not the natural inclination to be like, oh, it's okay. God's got a plan. That's an intentional thing that you have to do. We actually have to reject the temptation to cave and give in to fear and doubt in those moments. But why I want to talk to you about this, why I want to plead with you to do this is because when you are out of that valley and you will get out of that valley, when you're on the way back up and you're looking back at that thing that you went through that wasn't part of your plan, it will feel so good to know that you held on to your faith and your integrity. It will feel so good to know that you didn't cave into fear, that you didn't cave into doubt, that you didn't question God. Maybe you fought with him. I fight with him all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. But that you didn't cave in and lose your integrity through that valley that you went through. 
So that's the first point. You want to be a part of the resilient church? You need to believe and more than just more than just know, you need to actually believe and commit yourself to the fact that God has a plan. And more than that, you have to trust in that plan. I think it's difficult for us to actually understand what Ananias was going through when God asked him to do that. Right? Like Saul hated people like him. Saul wanted to see people like him murdered and tortured and imprisoned. And I don't even think that we can actually wrap our heads, at least most of us hopefully, can't wrap our heads around what it's like to have someone genuinely want to murder you. I mean, at some point in life, your spouse is probably going to want to murder you, but like to actually feel like, like what would it be like for someone to legitimately want to kill you? Like that's such a, I was trying to like, I was trying to find, a, I was trying to conceptualize a comparable example of what it would be like for somebody in our modern times here today to have an, like a comparable call. And the closest thing I could get to would be if God was like, hey, Craig, I want you to go fly to the Middle East and I want you to go meet with like, I don't know, like Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or somebody like that. Go meet with him and all his bodyguards and his army and go talk to him about Jesus. Even though he hates North Americans, even though he doesn't, he hates your faith, all that stuff, like go all the way. And you know what? I can't even wrap my head around it. And I think part of that is because like I can't even imagine myself being that faithful. Like, if I'm honest with myself, like I can't imagine doing that. And on top of this, for poor little Ananias, is Ananias was nobody. Like, it's not like a boss battle, right? It's not like Ananias was the leader of the Christians and, and then Saul was the leader of the anti-Christians and they were like, all right, we're going to like grab our boys and we're going to meet him on Straight Street. You know, it wasn't like that. It was this, this little, this guy, this like faithful disciple just minding his own business. And then Saul, who's got the backing of the entire Jewish regime and is coming with his boys and he's got his bodyguards and his special task force. And little Ananias has to go to him who wants to kill him. See, the second point today is God's power, right? Trusting that God has power. And oftentimes what we do with this verse, what people do when they preach on it, is they go, listen, look at Saul. Look at this guy who was so against Christians. And then he was saved by Jesus miraculously. And God's got the power to save anybody. And don't give up. Even if there's a situation or there's a person who you don't think could be saved, God can save anybody. And that is 100% true. 100% true. And when I'm, as I'm preaching to you here today, maybe what you're listening to this and, you're, and I'm going, God's power, right? And you're going, oh, easy one, right? And you're probably the one who's actually taking notes. And so you're like writing down, oh, God's power, yep, easy check mark, you know, like so tweetable, oh, that's great, or whatever. <laughs> uh, and so you're listening to this and it's, and it's like, oh, yeah, you totally agree, right? Yeah, God's got the power. God can save anybody. It's so good. But when God calls on you, when God calls on you to go talk to that person or when God calls on you to go lead that thing or when God calls on you to go get involved in that thing, all of a sudden this like laundry list of inadequacies pop up in the back of your head. And all of a sudden you've got these, these thoughts that are popping up and going, yeah, but they don't, they'll never listen to you because you're this kind of a person or you're only this old or they'll never, you know, you, you, can't, you can't speak to that because oh, I, I can't, I could never speak to that person. I don't know what I would say. I don't know enough about the Bible. Oh, you know, I, I'm not really living that way. And so it'd be, it'd be inappropriate of me to go like call him out on that or whatever it is, right? You got this list of little inadequacies that pop up for you and see the challenge for you, that if you're that kind of person right now that I'm talking to, the challenge for you isn't believing in God's power. 
It's believing in God's power in you. The challenge for you here as you hear this isn't actually believing that, oh yeah, there is a God that's powerful, right? That a resilient church doesn't just believe that there's some powerful God around them. A resilient church believes that there's a powerful God in them. Ananias was called to step out in a scary way. It was risky to go and to pray and meet with this guy, Saul. This was probably not according to his plan. This was a risky thing that he got called to do. Why? Because God uses us. Why was it part of God's plan to bring Ananias into the story? Because God uses his church, us, for his mission to reach the world. You are part of God's plan to reach the world. You are part of God's plan to share his glory and his light with everybody in this world. So a resilient church doesn't just believe that there's a God that's powerful around them, working around them. A resilient church believes that there's a God who is powerful working in them. Last point, God's potential. If you're a a kid watching this, you got no idea how good you got it. Because back in my era, back in my day, if you did something wrong, you were getting a whooping. And you know what? Things were actually probably a bit better for me than they were for the people before me. So there's, there's a whole string of generations that when they did something wrong, they would get a whooping. And I, there are still some kids who get that nowadays, but definitely not as many. And so I grew up in a South African household. So my parents actually took that like to the next level because physical whoopings, like physical punishment, physical torture only gets you so much. And my parents figured out that psychological torture, there's no limit to that, right? And so, so what would happen if I did something wrong, if I, if I you know, broke whatever a rule or, or didn't do my chores or whatever it was, if I was due for a whooping, if I was due to get spanked, what they would do is they'd take all these different kitchen utensils and they'd line them up on the counter. And then they call me and I have to walk down from my hallway and I come into the kitchen and then what I'd, what I'd do is I'd have to pick which item, which utensil would be used to spank me. And so <laughs> I had this like this trade-off, right? There's like a sliding scale. Over here I had like a whisk. And if I chose that, I get 10 spanks. So in the middle there'd be like a spatula and that was five. Or you know, I could send it, go for like the one, the rolling pin and just do the one bad boy and just get it done with, right? And so that was what I grew up with. Those were my whoopings. And so I remember, <laughs> I don't remember the pain of being spanked as a kid, but I remember walking down those hallways. I remember the feeling as I was walking in with every door that I passed leading up to the kitchen, knowing what was coming for me. I remember that feeling, the blood starts going and the heart's pumping and the hairs are sticking up. And I remember playing out in my mind every single conceivable scenario that I could imagine of how I'm, how I'm gonna, maybe I'll run away or maybe I'll blame it on my brother or like, okay, which one am I gonna take? Well, maybe if I do like some mathematical equations, I can actually figure out which one's gonna be the least amount of punishment. And I remember that feeling of walking down the hallway on the way to my woofins. <laughs> I wonder what would have been going on in Ananias' head as he walked down those streets. 
I wonder if every street that he passed, his blood started to race a little bit more. His heart was pumping just a little bit harder, the hairs on his head. And with every block that he passes, he got closer and closer to Straight Street. As he got closer and closer to meeting with Saul, I wonder what was going through his head. I wonder if he was evaluating every different jail that he would be stuck in for the rest of his life, or every different way that he'd be killed, or, or every single situation that could go wrong for him. I also wonder if Ananias ever imagined what kind of an amazing story he was going to be a part of because of that long walk that he took. I wonder if Ananias realized that Saul was going to become Paul because of that long walk that he took and that Paul was going to become the greatest contributor and evangelist of the Christian faith short of Jesus himself. That because of that long walk that Ananias took, that we'd have 13 more books of the Bible and that because of that long walk that he took, that billions more people would come to know Jesus and have a deeper and more full understanding of God because of that long walk that Ananias took. In your life, you are going to experience some long, scary walks. In your life, you are going to be taken on a different plan than what you have for yourself. Maybe you're already going through that here and now today, or you are going to go through it in the future. It is a guarantee. And when you feel scared, and when you feel alone and abandoned and you don't understand how this could be the plan, when you go through all of these things and you feel just completely abandoned by God, sooner or later you will go through those valleys. It is a guarantee for your life. The temptation when you go through that, the temptation in those valleys as you go on those long, scary walks is going to be to think about all the different ways that that ship could sink. It's going to be to think about all the different ways that those kids could just completely blow it. All the different ways that your finances are just not going to work out. All the different ways that those relationships are going to fail or that, you know, you can't lose this job or you can't move away from this to go to that or you can't take that trip and go or leave here and go there. Whatever it might be that God calls you or that God puts on your plate without asking you, whatever it is in those times, the temptation is going to be to imagine all the ways that it could go wrong. You're not naturally going to go think of all the great ways that this could go right, especially when it's not going according to your plan. But we have a God who has got a plan, and we have a God who has got power. And because of those two things, we can be optimistic. Because of our, because we have a God who has a plan and because we have a God who has power, we can actually be optimistic and uh, that our situation has unlimited potential. See, a resilient church, a resilient person, they build their resilience on a very simple pyramid. They build their resilience on this very simple pyramid that our optimism in God's potential is built on, that's the top of the pyramid, is just built on this unwavering faith in God's plan and in God's power. We build our resilience on that foundation that God's plan and God's power allows us to be optimistic for God's potential in our situation, in God's plan for our life. And if we want to be a resilient church and a resilient people, then we need to be rooted in God's plan and we need to trust in God's power and we need to focus on God's potential. I want to end today with this verse written by Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. 
It says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Southridge Church, everybody listening today, I want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. I want to ask you, build your resilience. Fortify yourself by placing your faith in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than anything you could ask or imagine. Southridge, as you go this week, my prayer for you is that you guys would step out into God's plan. You would embrace it, that you would resist that temptation. When you go through those valleys, when God brings you through those things, my prayer for you is that you would resist that temptation to, to focus in on the bad things, but instead turn your focus to the fact that we have a God who has a plan. We have a God who has power. And we have a God with unlimited potential. Have a great week, Southridge.